Simple question this morning, but a very difficult question. Are you an admirer? Am I an admirer? Or am I a follower? An admirer or a follower? I've been on a Soren Kierkegaard kick lately, even in my devotionals. He wrote this, It's well known that Christ consistently used the expression follower or follow. He never asks for admirers, worshipers, or adherents. No, he calls disciples. It is not adherents of a teaching, but followers of a life Christ is looking for. Jesus could never be satisfied with adherents who accept his teaching, especially with those who in their lives ignored it or let things take their usual course. His whole life on earth, from beginning to end, was destined solely to have followers, and hear this last little four words, and to make admirers impossible. That is uncomfortable. Are we followers of Jesus Messiah or are we admirers? The picture on the screen is a picture of being so close as his heel comes up, you can see the nail scar in his foot. This is is something we need to ask ourselves this morning. It's an examination sermon. I went to the Gonzaga game last night, and on the way there with Scott, I preached this sermon to him. I needed to go over it. I needed to do some work. And we talked about it. It's very uncomfortable for us. If we are a follower, we strive to be what we're admiring. Admirers of Jesus Messiah keep personally detached. They don't give credence to Christ's claim on them. Admirers stay at the safe distance. Admirers understand the gospel as Lee Theater downtown. Think of Lee Theater. We sit in a comfortable chair, we order some pizza, we're entertained in safety and calm. Caution flashes in the mind's eye of admirers, too dangerous, back up. Because I want you to know Jesus is telling us this morning, he is very dangerous. Followers recognize that the Christ life is a demand. It costs. Admirers realize that to let Christ be Christ means they will be up for examination because his life judges theirs. So the question, are we followers or are we admirers of Jesus Christ? Kierkegaard sounds that warning like the flashing sign, caution, as someone's traveling, of caution of avalanches, where beautiful snow could become the covering of one's grave. He wrote that when there is no danger, when there is a dead calm, when everything is favorable to our Christianity, it is all too easy to confuse an admirer with the follower. And this can happen very quietly. The admirer can be in the delusion that the position he takes is the true one when all they are doing is playing it safe. 
And I want you to know, I think our congregation, our church, has been playing it safe way too long. We are at a cusp. We are on the cliff, and we have decisions to make. And it's time for us to say, what are we going to risk at? The admirer can be in the delusion that the position he takes is the true one when all they are doing is playing it safe. And so, Kierkegaard writes, give heed therefore to the call to discipleship. I said followers recognize that the Christ Messiah life is a cost. Give heed to the call of discipleship. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote the cost of discipleship. He brings cost and discipleship following Jesus together in the title. Well, at least the English translation does. H. Fisher Hulström was Flusenberg's camp doctor. The picture on the screen is where this story all took place. He was observing Bonhoeffer. He did not realize the immensity that Dietrich's faith in Christ would have on followers worldwide. It was 5.30 a.m. and Admiral Canaris, General Uster, General Thomas, and Reichestrat Zach were taken from confinement. They were court-martialed. The door was half open, and Fischer Hulstrung, he could see Bonhoeffer, and Bonhoeffer was in there by himself kneeling on the hard floor in prayer. He wasn't stripped naked yet. He was always enthralled watching this pastor pray in his cell. He so fervently believed that God heard his prayers. And then Bonhoeffer was led naked to the gallows, to the gallows steps. He stopped in that picture of the open area. It's where it happened. He stopped, and he bowed his head, and he prayed again. Naked before God and naked before his Nazi executioners, unaided, he climbed the steps, composed, brave, and submissive. Flushenberg's doctor wrote, his death ensued after a few seconds. In almost 30 or almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. My favorite book by Jerry Sitzer, who hopefully will be coming for Weekend in the Word in two years, is Water from a Deep Well, Christian Spirituality from the Early Christian Martyrs to Modern Missionaries. And he wrote that we will never understand Christian spirituality what it is and what makes it unique unless we grasp the significance of martyrdom. Of martyrdom. And let's not forget that the word martyrs, martes in Greek is where we get the word martyr and we translate that witness. It's witness. A martyr is a witness. They, their life is a witness. And a martyr is one that could be a witness to all the way to death. Witness about Christ has done for us. Witness about who Jesus Messiah is. And if those we rub shoulders with don't know we are followers of Jesus, 
If we aren't living the martyr's life of witness, then we really need to ask ourselves, am I an admirer or a follower? If the people we're rubbing shoulders with don't know we're a follower, why not? Because this is what we're to do. He said that the, the early Christians died because they confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. His Lordship challenged all other ultimate claims on their lives. Wealth, status, power, and Rome itself, or I might say, America itself. We have been in the story a couple weeks now. Peter confesses Jesus as Messiah. I keep coming back to this because it's in the lectionary readings. And then in verse 32 of Mark's gospel in this chapter, Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer. He must suffer many things and he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days he'll rise again. And, and when we hear that, he, that was really bothersome to the disciples. What do you mean rise again? I mean, even after the transfiguration, they're, they're walking away and he said he would rise again and they're debating, what, is that, what the heck does he mean? We don't get that. Because no Jewish person thought that someone would rise from the dead in history. At the end of history, yes, but never in history. That's why when, when Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead, Martha says to Jesus, she's not cluing into what Jesus is going to do, he, she, she says, I know he'll be raised at the last day. Why? Because she's speaking out of that worldview that that's when it happens. It doesn't happen now. Jesus knows their understanding of the Messiah. You see, in verse 32, Jesus has to speak plainly about this to them. He just starts speaking very plainly. Peter just labeled Jesus Messiah in verse 29. You're the Messiah. And what is Messiah's instructions right after that? Don't tell anyone. Isn't that weird? Don't tell anyone. Don't witness that. Keep the secret. And then Jesus teaches plainly the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and must be killed. He doesn't refer to himself as the Messiah, even though he's just acknowledged that, Peter, you hit, it, you hit the nail on the head right there. I am the Messiah. He calls himself the Son of Man. He is humble and he is human. He's the Son of Man. Matthew tells us Jesus blessed Peter here because he was all ears to Jesus' father informing him the truth about who he is. Peter got that from the father. And then he said, Peter, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church. And Peter is the first person to stand up at Pentecost and he has the keys to the kingdom. Jesus says, you're going to have the keys to the kingdom. And he proclaims the Messiah, the stone, the rock that the builders rejected, the stumbling rock that causes Jews and Gentiles to stub their toe over and over and over again because it's such a foolish and weak message. How dare the early martyrs preach a foolish, unwise, weak Messiah? And yet on that day, thousands of people with that message come to faith in Christ. We know that Jesus was speaking plainly that he must suffer, be rejected, and must die. Because this is the way of the Messiah. And we know also that it infuriated the big mouth representative of the disciples, Peter. 
because it says that Peter rebukes Jesus. He rebukes the Messiah. How is that for confused blasphemy? And the word rebuke, Peter rebukes Jesus, it's a strong word. It is the word for rebuking demons in the scriptures. For rebuking horrendous evil. And he says that to Jesus. That's what Mark says. This is what's going on. And, and most people think this is one of the reasons why we think Peter was one of Mark's main sources when he wrote his gospel. He said, don't worry about keeping me safe in your writing, Mark. He rebukes the demonic thoughts that the Messiah must suffer, be rejected, and must be killed. The word is connected to the demonic confrontation. And further, suffering and rejection and death, Jesus said, will happen at the hands of the religious elite. And Peter thinks Jesus is delusional with this picture. So Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. Why? Because if you go out and start telling them, everyone out there is going to think your idea of the Messiah is the right one. And you don't get it. You, it's all, you've got it all upside down. You just, it's a skew. They want Messiah that will save the nation and trample on the Gentiles and on Rome. Their vision is a warrior Messiah that has the power to pull people together in unity in a military strength that flattens the enemy. And they want prosperity. Connected with Messiah, they had visions of their lives only getting better and better. The Israeli dream for every one Jewish. They wanted to live in peace where the demands of their lives were minimal. They wanted comfort and ease and convenience. Well, Jesus gave them what no rabbi ever taught. The Jewish rabbis knew that an understanding of Messiah was central to the Old Testament reading. They, they saw it every, they, they, they just saw that. The Messiah was going to be king and protect them. He was going to be a shepherd and care for the people. He would liberate the people. But Jesus offends with the word must. He must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed. That's Messiah theology. And no rabbi ever applied Isaiah 53, that we read in worship this morning to the Messiah. He was despised, rejected, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one whom people hid their faces. He was despised and held him in low, self, low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, we've gone astray, and each one has turned to their own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to be the slaughter. As sheep before its shearer is silent, this person didn't open his mouth. No rabbi applied that to the Messiah. We read Psalm 22 like it was read for us this morning. And we see the suffering of Jesus all through it. And we pray it from the New Testament perspective. We look back and we say, of course this is the Messiah. But the disciples' vision of Jesus, Messiah, was shaped by their bias. Suffering, rejection, killed. Understand, those are not Messiah words. 
And so Jesus continues to teach, but he broadens his student population. He calls the crowd to come up and be with the disciples. Because Messiah, it's not just for one people, it's for the world. It's for, he's for the nations. That's the way Psalm 22 ends. The ends of the earth will remember. Families of the nations will bow. He will rule over the nations. All the fe- rich will feast and worship. And the dead will kneel before him. He calls the crowd to him with the twelve. This following Messiah thing is for everybody. And we better get it right. Because a wrong view of Messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. We will see what we have been trained or culturally conditioned to see while remaining blind to what we have been conditioned not to see. It's the human condition. I mean, there have been documentaries presented on the best in the history of rock and roll. I've seen them. They were overseen by white producers. And in the history of rock and roll, they didn't put one African-American as significant in that history. Oh, you could just list them off. Why? Their bias. The NBA developed a bias program for referees because white referees called more fouls on black players while, you guessed it, black referees called more fouls on white players. And they, this is a problem. And so they literally did a program to correct it, to bring those margins closer together. If I wore stereopticons, I would be able to see an image out of my left eye and a different image out of my right eye at the same time. And if one of those images was Jim Northrup, he was my favorite baseball player growing up, played for the Detroit Tigers, World Series, 1968, called the Silver Fox. And the other one was a bullfighter from Madrid. I want you to know I would see only Jim Northrup. And someone from Madrid would only see the bullfighter. Walter Wink said, we tend to see what we are trained to see, not what is there. The disciples were seeing what they were trained to see. Jesus was teaching that to follow him meant living with dissonance. We have to live with tension. What Jesus was about and what the culture was about, they're two different things. So what is the Messiah way? Jesus said, those who would be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The cross, well, not it is the cross I have to bear like putting up with an inconvenience. Divinity, kingship, in the ancient world meant you had the power to torture people to bring them in submission. People would be nailed to trees like slabs of meat, especially the drags of society. There's not a death more humiliating, excruciating, painful, shaming, contemptible than crucifixion. The birds loved crucifixion. 
because no part of the human body was off limits for food at crucifixions. Roman's attitude toward crucifixions was just a shrug of the shoulders. The empire has to do what the empire has to do. Torture people publicly as a deterrent. Show your power over a failed revolt by nailing people to crosses, maybe even raping them first, to visually show who was in charge. Line the, line the roads with hundreds of corpse-hung crosses outside and inside the rebellious city. And Jesus takes that image of the cross and he puts it into the gathering's imagination, the crowds and the disciples. This was a scandalous teaching. And it meant total relinquishment of resources to the lordship of Jesus. If we want life, we must die. We've sung it this morning, die to self. Jesus told us he is life. And through the back door, Jesus subtly and clearly tells us that the power of affluence and the power of money and the power of economics inoculates followers of the cross life into mere admirers that reinterpret his message into the American dream. Notice the commercial life language in Mark in verse 36. What does it profit a person? These are all commercials. These are words Jesus pulls from finances and trade. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their very self? Or what can we give in exchange for the soul? So we ask, with the way we interact with money, and I want to say here, yes, money's not something that is just something that we just exchange. Money's a power. Wealth is a power. Jesus said, Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. And, there, and, the, and he, when he does that, he puts it on this power level with God that both God and money seek to dominate our lives. Money's not a neutral thing. It's a power that seeks to dominate. Would the way we interact with money reflect an admirer or a follower? The litmus test. If we laid our checkbooks right up here, just opened them up, our investments, our bank accounts, our possessions on the altar. Would Jesus see evidence of heart picking up the cross and following him or just a mere admirer trying to avoid the danger of the cross life? Those are hard questions, and I'm sorry, but this is the text. I, I always hated when Dale Bruner said one of the things is when you preach through a text, it, you preach what's there. When we see a cross, it would be appropriate to place our hand on our hearts while pointing at the crucifixion and saying, I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and his cross only. Genuflex, make the sign of the cross. The word allegiance always reminds me of Karl Barth, the greatest theologian of the 20th century. He was not a Hitler fan. Hitler was not a Barth fan. 
Hitler was coming through, and at the university, then you would have to salute in your classes to start off your loyalty to Adolf Hitler. Bart never did it. So the question was, is Bart, when Adolf Hitler comes through, is he going to salute Adolf Hitler? And his response, Karl Bart will give allegiance only to Jesus Christ and his church, period. He lost his job. University professor. He lost his job on a Friday, and on Monday, the University of Basel in Switzerland hired him. The cross preaches over and over that Jesus Christ has absolute claim on our total allegiance. If that is not a struggle in our lives, if we're not moving towards being a follower, if we don't sense that struggle, I want, you to, I want to suggest that we are admirers then and not followers. I think it would be wonderful if a couple of aliens landed on earth. I really do. They get out of their spaceship and they wander over to this life-size crucifix. They stand gazing up at the crucifix. I mean, when I open my phone, I have a beautiful picture of the crucifix that's at the Catholic Church in Moses Lake, life-size. So what goes through their mind in this picture? What is the conversation? There's a caption that I cut off in this because the language was too foul. But it gets to the point. The one alien says to the other, you know what we need to do? We need to get the out of here. That's what we need to do. Why? It takes aliens in a cartoon to help us understand the emotional feel of what the word cross means rolling off Jesus' lips to his followers. We better get out of here because this is what they do. We're dead meat. And he says, take up your cross and follow me. Dietrich, German Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by Nazis as a witness, a martyr for Jesus Christ just two weeks before the Allies, two weeks before the Allies liberated the concentration camp he was in. The Germans have this word, fart. Yeah. Everywhere in Germany there are signs encouraging you to einfart, ausfart, or gutefart. Have a good fart. The word fart means travel. So that's probably where we got our use of it. It's like wind, wind traveling through the body, right? Well, Bonhoeffer... He was a highly educated man. I mean, he got his doctorate like when he was 21. But what mattered for us in looking at him was his life. And that's what preached his life. He lived the cross life. He picked up the cross and followed Jesus. And he wrote the cross of discipleship. And there's a phrase that always haunts me. And in the German, it is, Jeder Ruf Christi Ferten den Tod. I've said it on the pulpit before. Jeder, every 
every, Yader, it's in the emphatic at the very beginning, Ruf, call, Yader, Ruf, Christi, every call of Christ, Yader, Ruf, Christi, fart, fart, travels, Yader, Ruf, Christi, fart, in Dane tote, every call, every call, every single call for you and me, by Jesus Christ, travels directly into death, that's what he said. That's what the passage says. You can't have life unless you die. And I hope this makes you uncomfortable. Because it makes me very uncomfortable. And I'm the one preaching it. That's the cross. And this morning we need to ask ourselves, are we a play it safe admirer or a follower picking up our cross and walking after Jesus and seeing that hole in his heel? Are we as a church just comfortable in coming when we want? Or are we saying, no, we need to move and we need to, we need to think about the future and we need to take uh, resources and say, where are we going and what does God by his Holy Spirit want us to do for the sake of Jesus Christ? What does he want us as a people to do in picking up our cross? Are we admirers or followers of Jesus Christ? Individually and corporately. This is the hard word of the gospel this morning. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray.